hymn contains so many truths of the Christian faith that I, I can't understand. How can it be? Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who, who caused his pain? No condemnation. Now I dread um, things that are beyond uh, my ability to, to grasp and comprehend about the Christian life, but the things that cause us to, to respond with praise and, and worship of God. We're in Luke chapter 24 and invite you to, to turn there with me. Luke chapter 24, the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been covering found, things that are foundational to the Christian life, to entering into the Christian life and continuing the Christian life, growing the Christian life. We've been talking about the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the coming weeks, we're going to be continuing to look at, at foundational things. And next two weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus on the road to Emmaus. We're going to see him talking to the disciples, and he's going to be telling us some things about the nature of Scripture and about the Old Testament, about really the, the purpose of Scripture and the purpose of preaching and just some, some really neat things we're going to be getting into the next few weeks. And then after that, after we finish up the Gospel of Luke in the future, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at some foundational things and understanding really what Jesus told those two disciples. We're going to kind of take that and, and look at the Old Testament. And if it's true that that all the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Uh, how is that, and, and how can that be? And so we're going to need to look at some, some neat things as we go through the Old Testament during the fall, just kind of a, an overview of the Old Testament to help us understand God's Word more deeply. So some, some neat, foundational, uh, God-glorifying things we'll be doing here, uh, not just this morning, but in the, the weeks and months to come. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope that, that God encourages you as well as we kind of move out of the summer months. It kind of already feels like we've moved out of the, the summer months. We're in fall now. Um, my, my mother-in-law is visiting from, from Texas where it's, you know, in the, the triple digits and she's walking around our house wearing sweaters and things like that. So I feel kind of bad. But um, here we are in Luke 24. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 12. And so if you would stand with me if you're able in honor of God as we read his word together. Remember, the, the women have uh, just been preparing spices and things to anoint the body of our, our Lord. They have uh, taken the Sabbath off, and then we come to verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, 
And he went home marveling at what had happened. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe. Help us to believe in the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the reality of our own resurrection by your grace. Help us to believe these things, to live lives that reflect that belief. Pray for those who are hurting this morning, for those who are mourning. Give them comfort as they contemplate your grace in their lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. I'd like you to keep your finger there in Luke chapter 24, and I want you to turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you're in Luke, there's John, then there's Acts and Romans, and then you come to the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want us to see some things in 1 Corinthians 15 that are, help, that are going to help us understand what's taking place in Luke 24 and why it is so important. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and apparently the church in Corinth is a church that, that's full of problems, many difficulties that they have, and one of them centers around the issue of the resurrection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul says to the church at Corinth, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel, and it's the gospel message that you received, and if you truly received it, you now stand before God, uh, positionally righteous. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. You, you stand in that gospel, and then he says something else rather remarkable about the gospel, it's, it's the gospel in which you are being saved. It's not just a, a one moment, okay, I'm saved, I'm right before God, now there, that's all there is to it, but this gospel message is a message that you believe and continue to believe, and the gospel message continues to change you, continues to deliver you from the effects of sin the gospel message is not just a, a one-time message that you hear and believe and receive and stand in it. It's a message that continues to cause you to be sanctified, to continue to, to grow in your holiness, in your Christ-likeness. And he says it's, it's that message in which you are, are being saved. And then he says this in verse 3 and, and tells us how crucial what we've been looking at in the past few weeks and this morning, how crucial these, these things are. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He talks about the confirmation of that resurrection. So this message, this gospel message that we are to believe, that, that Jesus died for our sins, we're sinners, we deserve eternal condemnation, Jesus died for those sins according to the Scripture, He was buried he rose again on the third day, according to the Scripture. Those are the things that we must believe as we place our trust in Jesus Christ, as we trust in Him alone for our salvation. And apparently, some of the people at Corinth didn't believe that there was a resurrection for the believer. 
they might have acknowledged that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but they didn't make the obvious corollary to that, that we would also raise from the dead. And Paul corrects that misunderstanding here as he goes through, and you come to verse 12, and Paul says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, if, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. It goes down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then I want you to look at verse 19. This is a, a verse I want us to, to meditate on as we begin to look at Luke 24 and talk about its application in our lives. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I want you to see what is happening here in 1 Corinthians 15. What we're seeing is that there is a life that we're living right now, and this life that we are living right now is temporary. There is also a life to come. And in reality, the life that we're living right now is incredibly brief and short and temporary compared to the life to come. We are going to be resurrected infinitely longer than we are not resurrected, if that makes sense. And Paul is saying, look, remember the resurrection of Jesus, and our confidence in Jesus' resurrection gives us confidence that there's a resurrection to come. Therefore, therefore, what we're doing right now for those of us who are believers, what we're doing right now, we understand that this life right now, it's short, it's temporary, and it is an investment. The things that we're doing right now in this life are like we're investing in what's to come. We live things, we do things right now, and as we live and we do those things right now, it's like we're, we're paying down, we're investing in a temporary time for that which is eternal. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, 19, for the person who doesn't believe in Jesus' resurrection and therefore doesn't believe in a future resurrection, what we're doing right now in this moment, for the person who doesn't believe those things, what we're doing right now in this moment is pretty foolish. The way that we're living our lives right now, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead and there's no resurrection for us, what we're doing right now is very foolish. If this is the only life that there is, we're not living it very well. Because we're living it as an investment in a future life. So here's the question I want you to, to ponder with me this morning as we look at God's word together. Here's the question that I want you to think about. Is my life pathetic? Is my life a little bit pitiful or pitiable? If other people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and, and who don't believe in the resurrection to come, if they were to examine my life, would they look at it and say, yeah, that's kind of pathetic. Those people are, are living kind of pathetic as, as a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection. If they were to look at your life, would they find your life 
pathetic. If you're a single person this morning, and a person who's also single but doesn't believe in Christ's resurrection and a resurrection to come, if they were to look at the way that you live your life and, and the standards you have and, and the way that you're living your life in terms of your morality and, and uh, how you view dating and how you view singleness as a young person, would they say, that's kind of pathetic? Those people are, are really missing. They're not living life to its fullest the way that I am. Or if you're a married person, and a, a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and doesn't believe in a resurrection to come, if they were to look at your marriage, would they find it a little pitiful? Would they feel sorry for you? Would they look at your life as a husband and say, man, that guy is really missing out on life as it's full, to its fullest. He's so concerned about how to serve his wife, and he's so concerned about how to spiritually serve his children. He's so concerned with how to lead his family in that way that he's, he's missing out on a lot that life has to offer. I look at the way that he views his finances and the, the, the things he's missing out in, wor- in the world. You know, he takes a, a, a mission trip during his vacation week. That guy is missing out on life. Or women, would, would other women who maybe don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and, and don't believe in the resurrection to come, would they look at the way that you live your life and, and say, that's kind of sad. The way that that woman is, is so concerned about how to, to serve her husband and, and see herself and her identity in terms of a marriage relationship instead of her identity just in, in and of herself, would they see you and say, that's kind of sad, that's kind of pathetic? Would people at school see you and the way you live your life and the things you think about and say, man, that kid is missing out. They're not living life as they should. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if there is no resurrection, we, above all people, should be pitied. So, my question to you, is your life pitiable? And if not, why not? Let me ask the same question a little bit differently. Let me ask it from from a different angle. Would your life look radically different? different if you passionately believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were 100% completely convinced that Jesus Christ had lived, had died for your sins, and risen from the dead, would your life look different than it does right now at this moment? Are you a person And I think all of us struggle with this temptation. Are you a person who said, you know what, I'm going to keep one foot in both worlds. I'm going to kind of diversify my investments here. And yeah, I'm going to do the church thing. I'm going to put one foot in the church world. I'm going to kind of live this church life and make some sacrifices. But I'm also going to keep one foot in in the world. And, And just in case this Christianity thing turns out not to be true, I'm not going to have missed out on all the things that I'd like to do in this time as well. That's not an option that God puts before us as believers. If we believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and if we believe that there's a resurrection to come, 
then we believe that this life that we're living right now is incredibly short, and God has given us the opportunity in this time, in this life, to be living in light of eternity, to be taking things that are temporary, things that are fleeting, things that will not last, and investing them in things that will last forever. In Luke chapter 24, we encounter the story of the resurrection. And what's interesting about Luke's account of the resurrection is he understands that some people, in fact, he focuses on the, the skepticism of the disciples, the skepticism that some people have to the resurrection. And he puts forth the testimony of, of several different individuals, of several different things to convince us of the reality of the resurrection and to encourage us to live rightly in light of it. And what I'm going to, again, ask you to think about this morning is, is my life pitiable? Would my life look different if I was passionately and fervently convinced of the reality of Christ's resurrection, or have I been trying to play it both ways? Before we actually begin looking at Luke 24, let, let me just kind of draw your attention to a couple things that we see in the Gospels as we look at each of them relate the story of Jesus' resurrection. One thing you'll notice is we're talking about this, this short period of time on Sunday morning when a lot of different things happen. It's kind of Sunday morning to kind of the beginning of, of Sunday afternoon. There's a lot of different things that are taking place here on Sunday morning. Jesus is, a, is, is, is risen from the dead. There are several different people, and in each of the gospel writers are focusing on different groups of people as, as they either encounter the risen Lord or, or encounter the the angels or encounter some sort of piece of physical evidence that begins to convince them of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, each gospel writer focuses on different details, and it is a very challenging thing to take all of these details and kind of combine them together and get a, a firm chronology of exactly what took place. And I'll be honest with you, I am not exactly sure of the exact chronology I don't think any of us can be, can be totally sure. There are many different ways that these things could have fit together that don't imply contradiction, but it's hard for us to know exactly the, the timeline of what took place. Let me just real quickly tell you just a minute here about what I think is a possible chronology of what took place. You have the women on early Sunday morning arrive at the tomb, and as they arrive there, we think Mary Magdalene perhaps is part of this group, but arrives there first. After she sees the stone rolled away and the other women come as well, she leaves and she goes to tell the disciples what's taken place. The other women who are there encounter the risen Lord, and then they come back and they tell the disciples what has taken place. The disciples are perplexed about what takes place. Peter and John run on ahead to see the tomb, and as they run on ahead, Mary Magdalene decides to go back to the tomb they encounter the empty tomb and leave. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and the garden surrounding the, in, in the surrounding area, and she encounters the risen Lord at that point. The women also, as they have, have been at the, the tomb earlier, they encountered uh, two angels, uh, one of whom does the, the primary speaking, and it's those angels that we see encountered throughout the gospel accounts. Now, even though each of the gospel writers are focusing on different things, there are some things that you'll see that each gospel story makes sure that we understand. Uh, one is 
they all want us to understand that the resurrection occurs to disciples who do not expect it and are initially skeptical. The disciples are initially skeptical concerning reports of Jesus' resurrection. We also see that the women are the women are the first who hear the story that Jesus has risen from the dead. All the gospel writers talk about the importance of this, this empty tomb that they encounter. All the gospel writers talk about Jesus' appearances to his disciples, and all of the gospel writers unanimously make sure that we understand that the result of the resurrection is an unwavering conviction on the part of the disciples that Jesus Christ has truly risen from the dead. So here at Luke 24, go ahead and turn back to Luke 24. Here in Luke chapter 24, we're going to encounter Luke giving us various evidences, different testimonies concerning the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And what I want you to be thinking about in your heart this morning is how would my life look different if I was passionately, fervently convinced of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? And if you say, well, I already am, are you living a life that is consistent with a passion, a fervency, a conviction of our Lord Jesus' resurrection and the reality of our own. So let's look first of all, the first testimony that that Luke puts before us here is the, the testimony of physical evidence. Number one, the first thing that we see is the testimony of the physical evidence in verses one through three. The testimony of the physical evidence. Verse one, it says this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So first of all, the first testimony is the testimony of of some physical evidence, an empty tomb. Notice that Luke begins by telling us the the day of the week that this takes place. He says it's the, the first day. This is significant because Jesus died on Friday and is buried. He spends Saturday in the tomb, and now it's the third day. It's, it's Sunday, and that's how the days are reckoned. I also think it's important to note here the, the idea that there's something special about the first day because it's the day that Jesus is risen from the dead. As you look at the rest of the New Testament, you see the the writers call our attention to the the significance of worship on the first day of the week. For example, Acts 20 verse 7, it says it's the first day of the week and we're gathered together to break bread. 1 Corinthians 16 2, he says on the first day when you're gathered together, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Revelation 1.10, John says I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And there's something very significant in the life of the early church about this first day of the week. And because of the significance of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead on Sunday, on the first day of the week, this is the day that the early church engages in coming together as a church and worshiping the Lord. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian. I'm not a person who's legalistic on what it looks like to worship the Lord on the first day of the week. But I I would encourage you with this. Understand that there's something very theologically significant about Sunday. 
there's something very theologically significant about the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was risen from the dead on Sunday, and it's the day that the church has set aside to engage in, in corporate worship of our Lord Jesus. So my encouragement to you, and again, I don't believe that any of us can, can tell others exactly what it looks like to observe this, but my, my encouragement to you would be to be very careful about how you view the, the first day of the week and, and, and engage in worship in a, in a God-glorifying way on Sunday, to be very careful with the, the things you do or don't do on a Sunday, to make sure that you're communicating to others, to your children, to your friends, to family members about how significant this this day of the week is in the life of the believers. We celebrate a risen Lord and worship a risen Lord. So it's the first day of the week. It's early dawn, and they go to the tomb. And by the way, the, the expression early dawn, it's interesting how the different gospel writers all kind of talk about the, the early nature of the hour. Some of them talk about how it was just barely light. Some of them focus on how it was still dark. And I was just this past uh, little while ago, Whitney and I were talking about seeing a deer early in the morning. And, and when Whitney was relating the story of, us, uh, of seeing a deer, she talked about the darkness of the hour. And whenever I was talking about seeing the deer, I talked about the, the beginning of, of light at this hour because obviously I'm way more optimistic than my wife is. And so, uh, but you know, the, the, the differences in the gospel accounts don't imply contradiction, but merely differences of perspective on what's taking place here. So it's early dawn, they go to the tomb, they take the spices they prepared. Remember we talked about last week, the women have watched Joseph and they've watched Nicodemus prepare the body of the Lord and they're like, okay, uh, I think we can, you know, really do this right. We're going to make a, you know, add to what they've done. And so they, they come and they come to the tomb. And remember we talked about this tomb. It was a, the entrance to the tomb was about three feet high. And as you would go into the tomb, you'd have to stoop down and there'd be kind of this, this shelf upon which a body was placed. And so the women come to the tomb. They see that the stone has been rolled away. And as they, they peer into this tomb, something rather remarkable is not seen. They're expecting to, to find this body, and instead there's no body. They marvel. They're confused. Brothers and sisters, here's the very interesting thing I want you to, to, to grasp about what a remarkable event this is. Each of the gospel writers mention this empty tomb. Each of the gospel writers talk about how Jesus is laid in a tomb and people come to the tomb and don't find him. This is a physical evidence, a physical piece of evidence that is extremely convincing for the early church. So, for example, uh, as, you, as you go through the, the gospel accounts and, and you encounter a people talking about what's taking place, Matthew 28, 6, the angel says to the women, look, come, come here and, and see the place. In Mark, in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, the angel says, look, he's not here. In John chapter 20, John and Peter come to the tomb, and uh, John comes there, and, and he looks in, and Peter kind of comes behind him, and, and he goes in, and he sees the linen cloths lying there, and, and he's confused. And it says in John chapter 20 that John goes in and sees these things, and as he sees this empty tomb, you know what he does? You know what the text tells us? He believes. He believes. 
for the early church and for Christians throughout the centuries, the reality of the empty tomb has been an incredibly convincing proof of the reality of Christ's resurrection. And what's also remarkable is that those who would doubt the reality of Christ's resurrection have not argued with that piece of evidence in and of itself. In other words, none of, no one has said, well, the women didn't really come to an empty tomb. There have been various explanations about how the tomb got empty. Some have said, well, perhaps Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he was just crucified and got, you know, kind of fainted. And when he fainted, they wrapped him up, they put him in the tomb, and he got all better and, and then walked out of the tomb himself. Some, very early in church history, claimed that the disciples had been able to overcome these, these guards and, and steal the body away from the tomb. Some have said, well, maybe the women went to the, the wrong tomb, and, and that's why they, there was an empty tomb. In other words, throughout church history, as those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ have seen an empty tomb, they've had to explain it. There's this testimony of this physical evidence, an empty tomb, and people have to deal with that. Now, I told you, the question I want you to be asking is, is my life pitiable? Is, is there something different about my life because I believe in, in the resurrection? And I believe that for those of us who are believers, the way we view the empty tomb and other physical evidence is, is much different than the unbelieving world. There was a, an article I read yesterday uh, by William Salatin, and it was entitled, The Politics of Pain. The Politics of Pain. And in this article, he was talking about polling that's been done by pro-life and some pro-abortion people about whether or not abortions should be outlawed after 20 weeks so after a child has reached 20 weeks, should, should abortion be, be outlawed past then? Now, of course, I'm a fervently pro-life person, and so I believe you know, in, in something uh, even, even more, um, more stringent than that in protecting the life of the unborn. But uh, he's talking about the, the polling that's been asked about this question, and, and he, he quotes one poll. Here's one poll that's, uh, that uh, begins this way. There is scientific evidence that unborn children are capable of feeling pain at least by 20 weeks after conception. Would you support or oppose a law that would prohibit abortions after 20 weeks unless the life of the mother was in danger? So, if it's true, there's an unborn child and it can feel pain after 20 weeks, would you support or oppose a law that would prohibit abortion after 20 weeks after conception? Now, Salatin finds it remarkable that I believe is about 60% of, of people would agree with such a prohibition. And he believes that perhaps people who are already predisposed to um, favor limiting, as he would call it, you know, access to abortion, he thinks that maybe they just kind of cling to that as, as support for their position, that the unborn child can feel pain. But I would argue, what's remarkable to me is that I think something that, that's almost the opposite is true, too. A person, in fact, according to some of these polls, 
over 33% of people who are confronted with the reality that there is an unborn child in the womb who can feel pain would still say, yeah, I, I think abortion is okay. That's shocking to me. Why is that shocking? Well, I believe one of the reasons it's shocking is because a believer looks at the physical world around them very differently than an unbeliever. A believer comes to a passage like Psalm 19, and in Psalm 19, uh, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And the believer, the person who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the person who believes that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reality, there's a resurrection for me as well. The believer understands those things are true and understands that our presence right now in the physical world is something that's temporary. And so the believer looks at the physical world around them very, very differently. A couple applications here then. You see that the believer is a person who is no longer arguing with the created realm. The created realm, according to Psalm 19, says, look, there's a God. Here's the glory of God. The whole created realm, the whole physical world cries out, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. And the person who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and denies the future resurrection, believes this life is all that there is, that person says, no, there's not. They look at the physical world, no, there's not. I don't, I don't believe that testimony. I don't believe it. The physical testimony is not convincing to me. There's a spiritual reality to how we view the physical world. The psalmist says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, this voice of the created realm, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. For the believer, for the person who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and who believes in a coming resurrection for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, they look at the created realm, and they look at physical evidence, and they see something radically different than the unbeliever. Another thing that's true, as we think about how our lives are different because we believe in the resurrection, because we believe that our lives are just a blip right now, it means that we don't cling to the physical world. You see, the, the unbeliever, the person who believes this life is, is all there is, no resurrection of Jesus, no resurrection to come, the person who's not convinced of the reality of Jesus' resurrection says, this world is all that there is, and I need to cling to it and grasp from it all that I can. If a person who didn't believe in the resurrection were to look at the way that you view physical resources, would they say, wow, there's something kind of pathetic about that? As I see their generosity toward those who are in need, as I see their generosity toward their church, as I see their generosity toward missions, there's something about their life that, that, that's kind of sad because they're not enjoying all the things of life they, they could. Whereas the believer says, look, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I believe that I'm going to, to rise from the dead. God's going to raise me from the dead as well someday. And I'm, I'm going to, to go, my soul's going to go and be with God, I'm go, and then I'm going to receive a, a new body in the time of the resurrection, and I want to be ready for that day. And I understand that the physical things of this world are temporary. I've been given these temporary things that I can turn into eternal treasure, and so my life reflects that. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You're, the way you view physical resources, the physical world will, will, will reflect it. 
how convincing you find the testimony of the physical world will be reflected in that. So that's the testimony of the physical evidence. Let's, let's look next to the next testimony that Luke points us to, and that's the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 4. It, it says that they're, they've, they're perplexed about this, and, and then Luke says, Behold, there's two men, and we know these are two angelic beings. They, they stood by them. They're in these, this dazzling apparel. There's something different about these guys, and the women are, are frightened. They recognize that these aren't just, just uh, mere guys, and they, they bow their faces to the ground, and the men respond in what's a gentle rebuke. There's a gentle correction they offer these women. Why, they ask, are you here? Why are you seeking the living among the dead. These are the same women that have been with Jesus throughout his ministry. They're, they're women that we encountered in Luke chapter 8 who were integral in the early ministry of, of Jesus in Luke. They've been with him. They've heard his teaching. In verse 6, they say very plainly, he's not here but is risen. And then here's, here's another part of the rebuke. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must, several things, number one, he must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. Number two, he must be crucified. Number three, on the third day, rise. There's a rebuke here, and the rebuke is that they didn't rightly understand what Jesus had told them. Now, this is something that kind of just blows my mind as I think about it, and we're going to talk more about this in the next two weeks. But, but, but catch what happened here. Here are women who have been with Jesus and have heard his teaching. They heard him, for example, whenever he said in Luke chapter 9, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's pretty blatant. That's right out. And what, is, what do those words do? Right over their heads, the disciples, everybody. He says it on several occasions. Sometimes with the, I think the women are present, sometimes it's just with the 12. In Luke 18, he would say, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated, I'm sorry, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. So here's the remarkable thing. Here's, here's the thing that just kind of blows my mind. The angels, the angels testimony is not persuasive because they're angels. It's not like they appear and say, we are angels, believe our testimony. Oh, you're angels. Okay, whatever you say is true. The women have been with Jesus. They have heard everything that, that he's said, and yet they, they don't understand it. What that tells me is that experience is not a valid source of authority for us. The angels, instead of saying, we are angels from heaven, listen to what we say as angels. They say, look, here's what you need to remember. Remember what Jesus said. Remember the words of Jesus. 
things that you've already heard, let me help you understand your experience. Our experience can be understood rightly by listening to the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And Luke will tell us that as they say these things, they they remembered his words, they remembered Jesus' words. The words of the angels here point back to the words of Jesus, and the women are able to rightly understand reality. If you believe the resurrection, and you believe in a future resurrection, you are going to believe the words of Jesus. The testimony of the Lord Jesus is going to be incredibly powerful in your life. It's going to affect how you view reality and what you believe reality is. The person who doesn't believe the words of the Lord Jesus is, is like a person who, who stumbles around in the darkness. Ephesians chapter 4 is a passage I was looking at with the, um, the history class I'm teaching on Monday night. We're talking about epistemology, how you know what you know, how you know what you know what you know what you know. And in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about the spiritual nature of knowledge. He says, don't live like the Gentiles. This is Ephesians 4, then verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then he talks about how they're living according to that way. They're living according to sexuality. They're, they're callous. And so what happens is there's a hard heart. The hard heart causes them to ignore God. Cause, ignoring God causes them to be alienated from God. And so they become darkened in their understanding. They don't understand the, the world around them, and so they kind of, they, they live this, this life of futility. We were watching some old videos over the weekend of us when we brought home Ellie, and kind of just how she was trying to get her, her new siblings to, to like her and, and know her, and she, you know, she enjoyed making them laugh. She's about a year and a half old at the time, and there's this one thing we saw her doing in this video. She would take uh, one of her brother's helmets and she would put it on backwards so she couldn't see. And then she would just kind of dance around and run into things and stuff. And the, the kids just thought it was hilarious. And, and she'd, you know, run into couches and run into her siblings. And, you know, a person who doesn't have an understanding of Jesus' words is like a person who's running around in the darkness. Their understanding of reality is, is not as crisp as it should be. But for a person who's a believer, who believes in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and, and who believes in a coming resurrection, the testimony of the Lord Jesus is precious. And, and the words of Jesus help us understand reality. Jesus, is, we're going to see in the next couple weeks as he talks to the disciples, he, he says, look, here's how you've been viewing everything and, and here's how you view it rightly with me is, is the, the lens through which everything else in Scripture is understood. If you're a believer, your reality is dictated by the words of Jesus Last testimony I want you to see here is the testimony of the unlikely. The testimony of the unlikely. Look at verse 8. It says, They remembered his words, and, and they returned from the tomb. They, they told all these things to the eleven and, and to the rest. And Now, this is a very sad part of Luke's gospel. Listen to what he says in Luke 10. I'm sorry, Luke 24, verse 10. He tells us these weren't just like, the women he's talking about weren't just, you know, casual acquaintances of Jesus. They weren't casual acquaintances of the disciples. They weren't just some women who had been following Jesus 
you know, we, you know, they weren't just the daughters of Jerusalem who had followed behind him just for a, a day or something. These were people who were at the, the, the center of Jesus' gospel ministry. They were very well known to the disciples. And, and look, it was Mary Magdalene, he says, verse 10. It was Joanna. It was Mary, the mother of James. And it was the other women with them. And, and they told these things to the apostles. They, they tell them what the angel has told them. The angels have told them. And then verse 11, tragic verse, sad verse. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. In this culture, the testimony of a woman wasn't considered as valid, as, as legally authoritative as the testimony of a man. And so there's, there's a very, you see a, a gender bias here, kind of this, this sexist term here. This, it refers to what the women are saying as an idle tale. The disciples hear what they're saying, oh, that's, you know how women are. You know how women will talk. Who knows what they've seen? That's women for you. It's an attitude that is ingrained in the human heart to view some people as less authoritative or, or less worthy of being believed than, than others. That's a message that is completely contrary to the gospel. Peter, verse 12, rose and ran to the tomb. He runs to the tomb and he stoops in and he looks in and he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what happened. And that's where Luke leaves us at the end of verse 12. With Peter marveling, wondering. What has Peter seen? Peter has seen the, the testimony of the physical evidence. He's seen the testimony of the Lord Jesus as the women have reminded him what the Lord Jesus has said. And then he's seen that the testimony of the unlikely of these, these women and now he has to, to think through it, to ponder it, to consider whether or not he believes it. I want you to begin to prepare your hearts for communion. And I want you to think about the testimonies that you've heard this morning. The things that should be true of your life if, if you're a person who believes in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and who believes in the resurrection from the dead of the believers into eternal life. I want you again, ask your heart that question. Does my life reflect the life of a person who believes in Jesus' resurrection? So think about the testimony of the physical evidence, the testimony of our Lord and His words, as I think about the testimony of these unlikely, how does my heart respond? If I was totally, completely, thoroughly convinced of the reality of Jesus' resurrection every moment of my day, how would my life look different? What would be different about what I'm doing in this moment of time that we call this life? What would be different about my friendships? What would be different about my relationship to my spouse? What would be different about my relationship to my parents? What would be different about how I live every moment of the day? I want you to think about that as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to see is that God is a very gracious, loving God.
The death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus means that even in our failures, and even in our failures to live lives of consistency, lives consistent with what we say we believe about the resurrection, God continues to give us His grace. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, the gospel isn't just a message that saved us in the past. It's the message that continues to save us. I'm not saying we lose our salvation. I'm saying that it's a message that we believe. It's a message that we stand in. And the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a message that we continue to believe and continue to apply to our lives and continues to sanctify us. Again, ask yourself right now, how would my life be different if I was completely and thoroughly convinced of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help us to honestly assess that question. What about our lives, our our work, our, our time with you, our time with our family, our time with friends reflects that we don't believe in the resurrection of your son in the way that we ought, that we're not applying it in the way of our way that we ought. Give us your grace as we ask this question. Help us as we celebrate your Lord's Supper to think about his death his resurrection, the new covenant that allows us to have life in you and to live radically different as a result. We, we love you and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.